human-induced climate change, including more frequent and intense extreme events, has caused widespread adverse impacts and related losses and damages to nature and people. And this is beyond natural climate variability. Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. You've just heard a statement from a recent IPCC report detailing the impacts of climate change. In this episode, we are digging into the report and highlighting its top 10 takeaway messages. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Park Flattery of Met Aaron's Climate Services. Just a quick note before we get started, this interview was recorded in March. There has since been a new IPCC report released, and this is focusing on steps required to limit and mitigate climate change. We will examine that report in a future episode. So, Pork, to, to set a little bit of context before we dig into the detail on the report, what is the IPCC? So the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and uh, it's, a, it's an international organisation that was formed in 1988 by the United Nations Environment Programme and the World Meteorological Organisation. And the objective of the IPCC is to provide governments at all levels with scientific information that they can use to develop climate policies. And uh, IPCC reports, they're also used as a key input into international climate change negotiations. So the Conference of Parties meetings that happen every few years, the IPCC reports uh, are used to inform those. And uh, yeah, it currently has around 195 countries as members and thousands of contributors from all over the world. So it's it's almost like a sort of a UN of of climate change. Would that be a way to look at it? Absolutely, yeah. And it's been it's been going now for about thirty years. The first report was in was in nineteen ninety, and we're now up to the sixth report, which was released uh, in February twenty twenty two. And it's so so those reports that you just mentioned, as you say, we're up to the sixth assessment report. So what's what's contained in those? The assessment reports are effectively a summary of the latest climate research from around the world. And they're typically published every five or six years, as I said, and they're published in three stages. So the first working group focuses uh, on the physical science of climate change. So that was produced a few weeks back um, and it focuses solely on things like emissions, uh, things like global temperature increases and changes in extreme weather and things like that. Then the second working group, which is the report we're gonna be talking about, uh, focuses on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. And then there's a third working group, which focuses on mitigation, and that will be out over the next few weeks as well. Um, And then each report is thousands of pages long. I think the latest one is three and a half thousand pages. But if people are interested um, in reading it themselves, they also publish a summary for policymakers, which you can Google and it's much uh, easier to read. Absolutely. I, I highly recommend those. They're, they're, they're concise and they give you sort of the main headlines that you, that you would want to be informed by. Um, so as you mentioned there, there's sort of three components to each, res- each report that comes out. Um, and the latest was looking at impacts and you mentioned vulnerability as well. So for this podcast, we're going to look at some of the main takeaway messages, maybe like 10 sort of takeaway messages from this report. And I might start with, with that, with vulnerability, particularly relating to, say, human populations. This report points out that losses and damages due to climate change are widespread and are being felt now. So between 3.3 billion and 3.6 billion people, that's more than 40% of the world's population, currently live in places and in situations that are extremely vulnerable to climate change. And some of these places are already experiencing the effects, um, which vary by region and are driven by factors such as geography, governance and socioeconomic status. 
And the report also references for the first time historical and ongoing patterns of inequity, such as colonialism, that contribute to regions' vulnerability to climate change. And the report describes how the most vulnerable people and systems are disproportionately affected by climate change impacts. So these are often the people in places that are the least responsible for the emissions that have actually caused climate change in the first place. So, for example, we see uh, impacts of severe heat waves and drought in countries that have been exploited by colonialism. These are countries which still retain the scars of having their natural resources taken by other nations. And often this is still ongoing to this day. Um, and we, we can see from, uh, from the science and from the reports that weather extremes experienced by these vulnerable people have actually reduced food and water security for millions in the most vulnerable places. And these places often don't have the capacity to adapt to the changes um, as the profits that they've, they could have had from their natural resources have been taken from them. And we also see that deaths from heat stress and air pollution are increasing in these places as a direct result of climate change. Yeah, that's um, one of the really interesting things about this report is it it really highlights and, and explicitly says the effects of existing inequalities and how these will be exacerbated by climate change. Those that are essentially already vulnerable or already struggling are the ones who'll be worst affected. And that number, three and a half billion, is is enormous. This thing that three and a half billion people, their living situation already makes them highly vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a frightening figure. And this report is stark in its kind of um, description of how extreme the impacts of climate change already are and how um, how bad they will get in future, depending on the amount of emissions we produce. And I guess it's not just, you know, obviously it's a human-centric uh, viewpoint for ourselves, but obviously the report highlights how ecosystems are vulnerable to climate change as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the impact is not just on humans, it's on biodiversity and it's on nature. Um, and we know that like globally now, only 15% of the land, 21% of the freshwater and 8% of the oceans are in protected areas. And even in these protected areas, uh, we know that they're not being protected well enough to increase resilience to climate change. So there's still huge vulnerability in human and in, um, and in uh, natural ecosystems as well. Some of these changes in the report are referred to as being potentially irreversible. Isn't that correct? That, that once we go past these thresholds or once we make these changes, that we may not be able to undo it. So the report says that if global temperatures rise by more than one and a half degrees above the pre-industrial levels, uh, that some environmental changes could be irreversible. And this will depend, of course, on the magnitude and the duration of the kind of overshoot past 1.5 degrees. So the more we go over 1.5, the more dangerous things become. So, for example, um, we know that forests in Arctic and permafrost zones that kind of act as carbon dioxide stores, CO2 reservoirs, um, that extreme global warming could lead to the release of huge amounts of carbon from these um, places and huge amounts of methane. And this would then in turn drive further warming, which becomes a kind of self-perpetuating cycle. Um, and we actually see as well in relation to forests, even this week, there was research published uh, that says the Amazon is approaching a tipping point, um, which could trigger a huge dieback of the entire rainforest and kill off what we call um, the lungs of the planet. Um, so this could see the entire Amazon rainforest become a savanna type ecosystem. And this would release huge amounts of carbon and further accelerate uh, global warming, which is obviously quite frightening. So this is what we sometimes hear as a a climate sort of feedback loop. Is that right? Is that what they're referring to here? 
that's it, yeah. This is called a positive feedback loop, but um, this definitely is not uh, a positive thing. It's not a good thing. It just means it uh, kind of reinforces itself. And another example of this as well, um, uh, people might have heard of, is uh, the permafrost thaw that's happening in Arctic ecosystems as well. So permafrost is frozen soil and uh, it's been frozen for thousands of years. And it stores uh, huge amounts of methane because it's frozen, it's not released. But as the planet warms um, and the, the ground itself thaws, then this permafrost can get released. And then this releases methane, which causes more warming, which then causes more methane to be released as the planet warms. Um, so as if that wasn't bad enough as well, the melting permafrost exposes people who live in that kind of area to the exposure to radon gas, which also gets released. And this is linked to lung cancer and other kind of health impacts. So it's a, it's a big negative and it all depends on the amount of emissions that we release kind of from now. One, one of the big uh, loops that we've talked about before, the feedback loops, in, is in relation to the loss of snow and ice and how as this melts more, you're reflecting less of the sun's energy and you're absorbing more heat and things get warmer and more melt takes place, etc. We talked about it in detail in a previous episode called Why Ice Matters. So I recommend people to have a listen to that if they want to know more about it. Um, you mentioned how this threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius, and we, we've talked about it a lot before on the podcast. In terms of approaching that, how, how close are we to hitting 1.5 degrees Celsius? So the latest estimates show that we're, the, as a planet, we're about 1.1 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. Um, and this is set to increase. We're set to cross 1.5 over the next 10 or 20 years unless we really um, reduce emissions drastically um, from now. But I think it's important to note when we talk about uh, an increase in 1.5 degrees, that this is not equal around the planet. So certain areas are going to warm far more than others. And um, the kind of thing to note is that the areas that are warming most are the areas of the poles. So the Arctic is warming far more than, let's say, Ireland is. Ireland's warm by about one degree. We're around about the global average. Central Europe's warmed a bit more and will warm more in the future. And the Arctic has warmed by even more still and is set to warm by maybe, let's say, if, we, if the planet warms by two degrees, uh, we can see the Arctic warming by three or even four degrees which will be um, catastrophic, as you said, for the albedo, the amount that's reflected um, by the sun, and then for sea level rise with all that um, ice that will melt. The report refers to soft and hard limits. Um, what, are, what are these referring to? So these are limits that ecosystems and communities will not be able to cope with. So even if finance and planning can help many communities to improve their preparations for climate change, even with that support, uh, certain places will hit hard limits to their ability to adapt if temperatures continue to rise. So, for example, coastal communities can temporarily buffer themselves from extreme storms by maybe restoring coral reefs, restoring mangroves and wetlands. Um, but rising seas will eventually overwhelm these efforts and result in coastal erosion and flooding and a loss of freshwater resources that can't actually be avoided. Um, and the report explicitly states that projected climate change combined with other non-climatic drivers uh, will cause loss and degradation of many of the world's forests, coral reefs and low-lying uh, coastal wetlands. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bleak kind of outlook for certain areas of the planet, which might reach hard limits. A few episodes back, we spoke with uh, Professor Rachel Lowell talking about how changes in climate can influence the spread of disease and as a result, human health. 
does this report look into how climate change will impact human health? Yeah, it certainly does. And it, it states that climate change has already caused uh, large amounts of death and suffering all around the world, and it will continue to do so. Um, so in addition to contributing to deaths um, by triggering natural disasters, so climate change um, exacerbates fire, forest fires, it exacerbates heat waves like we saw in Canada and Australia over the last couple of years. It also affects public health in, in other ways. So smoke inhalation from fires has contributed to uh, cardiovascular and respiratory pro problems in lots of people. Um, increased rainfall and flooding has led to the spread of diseases such as cholera. And then interestingly as well, um, this report covers the mental health issues um, uh, that are tied to just the trauma of living through extreme events and the loss of livelihoods, et cetera, um, that are also on the rise. So we see that climate-related uh, diseases, like climate-related diseases brought with food and waterborne diseases uh, are all increasing. And as is the incidence of vector-borne diseases um, carried by animals. Animal and human diseases are emerging in new areas that we haven't seen before. And some of these are zoonotic diseases, and which we've heard a, a lot about with the COVID pandemic, which might have come from um, a wet market in Wuhan. There's a lot of evidence pointing towards that. But it also it's things like bird flu and swine flu. Um, are as We're starting to see them in new areas because of increased temperatures um, and increased flooding and increased rainfall have also increased the occurrence of uh, diarrhea-based diseases like cholera and other gastrointestinal infect infections uh, in certain places. So there's a lot of impacts um, on human health uh, that this report highlights. Yeah, one, of the, one of the aspects that Professor Lowe was highlighting was how the range of some of the uh, creatures that can transmit these diseases, um, these ranges are changing with increasing temperature. So the, the big one that we were discussing was malaria and the spread of mosquitoes and how regions that are traditionally not malaria uh, strong regions uh, may, be, may become so in the next, uh, the next decade or two because of the fact that mosquitoes are traveling and surviving in these climates also as well. Yeah, so while we see that for um, illnesses that can affect humans, we also see it for illnesses that can affect animals or that can affect plants. So there are certain pathogens or certain parasites can get uh, can now survive in in Ireland that didn't used to be able to survive here. Let's say so we have we have um, mites that can attack trees and can really cause severe damage um, that would not have survived here. Let's say thirty years ago are now able to. So we need to be very careful about. Um, minding uh, or looking after the kind of landscapes and the ecosystems um, to make sure that they can they can deal with um, new pests that might be brought with climate change. In terms of protecting those ecosystems, does the report go into detail on that? Yes, yeah, so the report emphasises that sustainable economic development has to include protection for biodiversity and natural ecosystems. Because these uh, natural ecosystems and biodiversity help to secure resources such as fresh water and coastlines and can shield against the effects of extreme weather like storms. And there's multiple lines of evidence that suggest that maintaining the resilience of biodiversity and ecosystems as the climate warms uh, will very much depend on the effective and equitable conservation of approximately 30 to 50 percent of the Earth's land, fresh water, and ocean areas. So we mentioned earlier that only about 14% of the land is protected, and this will need to change to 30 to 50% in order to protect these ecosystems. 
And the report also states that conservation, protection and restoration of terrestrial and ocean ecosystems, together with targeted managements to adapt to the unavoidable impacts of climate change, will help to reduce the vulnerability of biodiversity to climate change. So what we need is rapidly increase the proportion of global land that's currently under conservation and protection if we are to adapt properly to the impacts of climate change. In terms of adaptation, there, there have been notable areas of progress, uh, say, since the last report was put out in terms of how communities and societies are, are implementing adaptation plans. And, and that's that's detailed to some degree in the report. Yeah, it certainly is. So there is some good news as the report outlines that adaptation planning and implementation have continued to increase across all regions. So everywhere on the planet, we see increased planning and increased implementation of adaptation measures. And there's growing public and political awareness of climate impacts and risks. And this has resulted in at least 170 countries and many cities and local authorities have now included adaptation in their climate policies and their planning processes. And there's decision support tools and climate services being used in many countries now around the world, and they're being developed further and further. We're working on it currently in Medairn. And there are also pilot projects and local experiments uh, that are being implemented in many different sectors around the world as well. So there is progress. There is some good signs. But um, again, despite the progress, there are adaptation gaps between the current levels of adaptation and the levels that we actually need to respond to the risks that we already face. So most observed adaptation is fragmented. It's small scale and it's only designed to respond to current impacts or near term risks. And it's focused on planning rather than implementation. So we have a lot of talk about what we need to do, but we certainly don't have anywhere near enough action. Um, so it's it's complicated. There are certain positives, but there are still uh, there is still a lot of work to be done. We mentioned earlier about how the report highlights that vulnerable demographics are the ones that will be most affected by climate change. So. I'd imagine aspects of the adaptation needs to account for these social inequalities also. Absolutely. So even in um, in Ireland's climate action plan, we see an emphasis on a phrase that um, is kind of common now across IPCC literature and across uh, these adaptation plans. And that's the phrase of a just transition. And this means that the most vulnerable people need to be protected as we move to a zero carbon economy. It's kind of easier for people who have money and have resources to deal with um, to deal with uh, increased fuel prices, to deal with increased um, cost of insulating a home, let's say, or retrofitting a home. So we need to ensure that um, the least or the most vulnerable people who have the least resources are compensated adequately or are supported in this just transition. Um, otherwise, it won't happen. You know, it won't happen if it's just the elite or just a few people that manage to be able to adapt. We need to bring everyone along with this and to support them on the journey. Right. So sort of a society wide change. It's not going to change unless unless everyone is on board. Often when when you hear about or when the discussion on climate change response is taking place, it can be broken into two groups in terms of, say, mitigation, which is preventing and reducing climate change, and then adaptation, which is sort of preparing and, and trying to reduce the effects of climate change, um, and often seen as sort of two different approaches almost. But this report talks about climate-resilient development. And that's kind of really like a merger of the two approaches, right? To find the most sustainable outcomes. 
So climate resilient development essentially means long-term actions that provide mitigation and adaptation together. So this could be things like urban greening, so plant putting green spaces into towns. Uh, it can be things like rewetting the landscape, rewilding the landscape, and restoration of ecosystems such as wetlands. And resilience in the context of climate change essentially means the ability to bounce back after or back to a previous state after a disturbance. So, for example, the ability of a coastal area to return to normal after a flood event, or the ability of a forest to come back to a normal after a drought event. And this climate resilient development uh, can generate multiple additional benefits. It can improve agricultural productivity as biodiversity increases. It can improve um, it can improve pollination and things like that. It can improve innovation and health of a whole ecosystem in general. It can end up improving food security and biodiversity, um, as well as reducing the risks and damages. So there's a lot of positives in this climate resilient development. Examples of this that we could be um, that we could be doing in Ireland include uh, restoring wetlands, restoring peatlands. This can help reduce flood risk and promote national natural ecosystems and biodiversity. Um, as well as this, it would uh, help uh, reduce the impact of extreme rainfall. Um, and similarly, restoring natural forests in place of commercial forestry. Um, could end up benefiting climate and biodiversity at the same time. You, you mentioned there one of the sort of potential projects or solutions uh, would be, say, urban greening, for example. Um, we know that our world is becoming more urbanized. I think something, you know, in the order of, of half of all people will be living in, in urban areas fairly soon in the next few years. And I guess there's, there's obviously a risk with that and in terms of um, they tend to be warmer places and you may have increased heat stress or, or supply of water supply could be a threat. But also, I guess there's an opportunity there because if you can make changes to these areas where the most people live, yeah, you can have a very large impact. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a big focus in on cities by the IPCC and just by adaptation planning in general, because it means you'll, uh, you'll attack the problem where most people live in the first place. So uh, there are many cities that are kind of leading the way on green development, places like Copenhagen in Denmark, where um, a kind of a, a, a more livable city is being developed, where people don't take public transport everywhere, where public transport is also um, is not powered by fossil fuels. People cycle as much as possible, and this is um, uh, the kind of government provides infrastructure for this to happen. And these are things that need to happen everywhere um, if we're to develop and cities are ideal places for them to, um, to occur. And we can do things like bringing trees and green roofs into cities and towns. The benefits that these things have include it'll cool the local environment from extreme heat that we might face in the future. Uh, trees provide shelter for wildlife. They also clean the air and filter pollution um, so around schools and things like that depending on the type of tree it needs to be the correct tree and it needs to be able to survive future shocks but we need far more urban greening to happen I think uh, in order to reduce um, uh, CO2 emissions in cities but also just to make cities nicer places to be. In terms of you were saying you know some of the specifics there for some of these changes you'd make you know it has to be the right tree type or things like that um some of these efforts and adaptations while well-meaning there's been evidence that these are actually they can be harmful in the long term they can be what they refer to as sort of maladaptations and there's, there's evidence of this in the latest report that some of these efforts are actually creating new or, or worse problems potentially 
Yeah, absolutely. So a point raised by the IPCC here um, is, as you just said, it's maladaptation, and they really focus on this in the latest report. And it essentially means adaptation that has unintended consequences. So it's um, risks that arise from uh, good, well-intentioned adaptation that end up creating more problems than they solve. So the IPCC report says that deployment of afforestation, uh, so that's planting trees on naturally unforested land, or poorly implemented bioenergy without carbon capture and storage can compound climate-related risks uh, to biodiversity, water, and food security, especially if they're implemented at large scales and in regions with insecure land tenure. So essentially, this means that if the owner of the land is likely to change the use regularly, then there's not much point in incentivizing them to plant trees in it or to change the use or in any long-term planning really. So it needs to be well-managed and there needs to be longevity planned into it if we're going to invest in things like afforestation. And it, um, that's a very interesting point when it comes to Ireland as well. There's a very kind of complex relationship between um, the carbon that's stored in trees and in ecosystems and in soils and the type of vegetation that kind of grows on them. So we know that if we disturb soils that are naturally taking in carbon, so for example, in Ireland, our natural grasslands, the ones that aren't on drained wetlands, but just natural grasslands here in Ireland, take in and store uh, lots and lots of carbon. Um, but if we end up digging up these grasslands and planting trees on them, we could end up disturbing the soil to such an extent that it would release more carbon than those trees would ever take in. So this would be an example of maladaptation. We might think, oh, we'll plant trees, it'll solve all our problems. Um, but unfortunately, it's just, it isn't that simple. Things are much more complicated and we need to think about things in a much more holistic way and think about the impacts that might happen um, and the unintended impacts, especially. Focusing in on, on Ireland there, in terms of impacts, have we... Have we seen or have we recorded or observed climate change impacts here in Ireland and what, what kind of uh, what kind of magnitude are they? Yeah, absolutely. So we've already seen um, that Ireland's temperature has increased uh, by about one degree since um, since pre-industrial times. And we're also seeing increases in rainfall um, and increases in extreme rainfall events. And the projections, the modelling for Ireland also shows that we're going to experience increased flooding in future, especially in winter due to heavy rainfall events, and especially in the west of Ireland. And we're also going to experience increasing drought problems, especially in the east of Ireland during the summer. And things like heat stress will start to become more of a problem in Ireland for the first time. And we might need more air conditioning in buildings. Things we haven't thought about needing in Ireland before uh, might become necessary. Are we making progress in terms of required adaptation? Uh, so we are making progress, but it is not enough progress. Um, so we have a, a climate change advisory council. and These were set up as part of the climate action plan. And they essentially uh, critique the government's response to climate change and point out things that could be done better and which places need more attention. And in their annual review in 2021, that's the latest review that's out, uh, the headline was more focus on implementation and, adap and adaptation is needed. Uh, so they note that delays in implementation of the 2019 Climate Action Plan led to us missing our 2020 emissions reduction targets and a lack of long-term, and there's a lack of a long-term emissions reduction strategy. And there's also a, a gap between climate action planning and climate action implementation. As we said, there's lots of um, there's lots of plans, but there's not enough action. And out of the 12 key sectors of the economy um, that that report covered, 
only two were actually assessed to be making good progress. And these were the flood risk management sector and the water quality sector. But all other sectors um, were not said to be making good progress. Some, was, some were satisfactory progress and a couple were making no progress at all. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done on adaptation still. I guess that's that's kind of almost the, the take home message from this whole report really is that there are, you know, there are stark warnings and there are limits that, that we need to avoid, but there is also evidence of, of widespread attempts to, to reduce the problem. And I guess, you know, if you're, if you're, if your house is on fire, you might as well try and save some of it. You know, we know there's going to be, there are going to be some changes and there are going to be some uh, damages to our human and, and natural environments. But if we can uh, make efforts now, we can at least limit some of that. And, and the report does show that we are starting to do that. Yeah, here in Ireland, you know, we see local authorities have all produced adaptation plans for every local authority in Ireland. And they're developing climate action plans that co- climate action plans that cover mitigation and adaptation. And these are all coordinated and overseen by these climate action regional offices that we've set up. So there is plenty going on in Ireland um, that we are we're well aware of the issues. It's just the pace of change and uh, maybe the investment in change doesn't match up with our ambitions just yet. So you mentioned mental health, and obviously there are specifics in terms of the trauma that people will will feel from having gone through climate crises and extreme weather events things like that. But there's also broader effects of climate change and climate change fear on, on mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So these include things like anxiety and stress. And these are only expected to increase under further global warming in all assessed regions, and particularly for children and adolescents and those with underlying health conditions and maybe elderly people, because these are the most vulnerable people to things like heat stress. The older you are, the more likely you are to get um, complications from heat stress. So uh, cases as well of eco-anxiety are also on the rise in children as they kind of look at the damage that older generations have caused to the planet and worry about their own future. And the fact that they can't really do a lot about it right now, they don't really have the power to act and the window of opportunity is, is closing rapidly. So effective adaptation options that reduce these mental health risks under climate change um, are kind of necessary. And this, these can be things like improving access to mental health care, um, monitoring the impacts of extreme weather events. As well, uh, the report highlights that it's important that health and well-being need to be integrated into all adaptation measures. So when we're thinking about adaptation in food sectors, in social protection and in infrastructure, we need to also think about how health and human health can be brought into these. Essentially, the report highlights that holistic and interconnected adaptation policies are essential if adaptation is to succeed. One of the things we often consider is the importance of how you communicate about climate change as well. I mean, you want to emphasize how serious it is and to present the facts and the information, not to, not to obviously hide that, but also you need to present um, the option of doing something and, and the reason for hope as well. Absolutely. Like there is no point in being, uh, in, in uh, being all doom and gloom about it and saying there is no, there's no hope. You know, there is plenty of hope. There's plenty of action. There's a global movement of uh, young people and kids who are protesting for their future on a weekly basis. And they're still doing it. Uh, there's huge, huge amounts of hope. And um, 
it is just really worth noting though um that the window for opportunity is closing and it's it's closing rapidly and the report actually does cover this the last sentence of the report says any further delay on global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all so there's plenty of hope but there's a very short time limit in which uh, to act well, it's a, it's a really interesting report. And as you mentioned, Pork, I, I highly recommend people to have a look at the summary for policymakers. It's a much more condensed, condensed version and will give you uh, a broad insight into the, the latest developments. And uh, but but this has really helped us to to illuminate and, and get the main points from it. So so thanks very much for coming in to talk to us today, Pork. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Flattery for joining me this month. All thoughts or comments on this episode are welcome. So be sure to get in touch on the Met Aaron or RT Weather social channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally get your podcasts and do check out our previous episodes. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next month. But until then, take care. The Met Aaron podcast is presented and researched by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick. Production and editing is by Jamie Lanagon. 